Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Adrian Brown and Thea Snow, who are between them representing the Centre for Public Impact, a global NGO, which in its own words aims to reimagine government so that it works for everyone. Adrian Brown is the executive director of the centre, before which she held a range of positions in UK government advising on policy and strategy. And Thea Snow is the director of the centre's work in Australia and New Zealand. She has experience in innovation and policy delivery across the private, public and not-for-profit sectors. So welcome to both of you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Hi, Toby. Thanks, Toby. So let's start with the easy stuff. Perhaps you could give me a quick overview of the Centre for Public Impact and uh, what reimagining government actually means. Well, CPI was set up about five or six years ago. And as you said, we're a not-for-profit organisation and we seek to work with government and people who work with government, other change makers, who uh, share our vision, we hope, in the kind of change that we're seeking to pursue in the world. And that vision is built around three core pillars. The first is that we recognise that the world is complex. So we're very interested in exploring complexity, systems thinking, that kind of thing. The second is that human relationships matter a great deal. So we're really interested in how people relate to one another and people relate to government. And thirdly, that learning is really important. So that this isn't about quick fix solutions or or easy answers. This is about creating learning systems that can improve over time and help us to better address the challenges we face. That's what we mean by reimagining government. And that's what we're trying to promote at CPI in governments all around the world. So we have offices in London, in the US, in Australia, in India, but we we try to work as globally as we can. Great. And what do you actually do? Are you like an academic think tank? Are you on the ground getting your hands dirty? Well, we like to be mysterious and work between between different modes, Toby. So we do some stuff which is a bit like a think tank. So we do do research, we do publish reports, often in partnership with others. We also like to work directly with governments and and with other partners. So we're a little bit like a consultancy in that way, but we don't pretend to bring answers. We describe ourselves as a learning partner in that regard. So we're seeking to go on a journey with organizations to help them learn and explore the issues that we and they hopefully are interested in. And then we also do a bit of what you might call convening. So we bring people together. Uh, We have a website which has articles and blogs that we think are interesting that we share from all sorts of different people around the world. And we pre-COVID physically convene people. And and these days, a lot of uh, webinars, we we were, for example, at the UN General Assembly recently bringing people together to talk about inclusive economies. So that's the kind of of thing we do. Right. And and clearly worldwide, since you also have a director for Australia and New Zealand. Yes. Well, I, I have to admit at the moment, we we feel that we're too skewed towards sort of Western, richer countries. Uh, we, we do some work in other parts of the world, but we are certainly looking to broaden our footprint. But we, we do believe our vision, I suppose this is the important thing, our vision for government is relevant, whether you're in Bangladesh or in Canada. These principles that I, that I outlined very quickly there are relevant around the world, we believe. Great. So there's a few things you've mentioned already that I'd like to zoom in on. Um, But let's start with uh, a very broad topic, which is your criticism of the role of evidence in policymaking, or rather the way that role is envisaged at the moment. So you've written a fair bit, both of you, in fact, about this particular issue. As I understand it, you're quite critical of scholarship in that area in particular. So the the quote that caught my eye from a piece you wrote recently is that the evidence-based policy movement has lost its way. 
What exactly is your beef here? So I think our argument in its simplest form is that we need to be balanced when we think about the role of evidence in policymaking. And a lot of the debate that we see from policymakers, from people who are working with policymakers, risks falling into the trap of pretending or assuming that evidence is like the gold standard version of policymaking. And if only we had more evidence to bring into the policymaking process, then all would be well in the world. And I think we think that is problematic for a number of reasons. It assumes that we can gather evidence about what matters. And often what you can explore through a more scientific research-based process is only part of what is interesting for a policy problem. It, we believe, risks reinforcing what might be problematic power dynamics in terms of who gets to decide what is good evidence, who gets to control the evidence process. And we also think that it reinforces a top-down way of thinking about policymaking which is to say, you know, a small group of very clever people get together in some corridor somewhere centrally and come up with answers, come up with solutions that then get rolled out across the country or across the, the area, the, the region of interest, or scaled up. And we think that way of thinking about government as a sort of hierarchical controlling entity is just not fit for purpose when faced with the kinds of challenges that we know exist today, which are complex, which are evolving, and which require tapping into the knowledge and experience and expertise of many, many people out in the field and, of course, citizens themselves. So we don't say that evidence is a bad thing to bring to the policy debate, but we think the way it's being brought into the policy debate can often be unhelpful or at least accentuate some unhelpful biases. Right. And just to be clear, when you say evidence here, you're talking about like research-based evidence, scientific in the broadest sense. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it's interesting because different people define evidence differently. And we were actually having a conversation about this just the other day, that there's been a tendency in the, in the context of conversations around data to really broaden the definition of what constitutes data. So there's big data, then people talk about thick data, which is more qualitative kinds of data. Nora Bateson, who's an anthropologist, talks about um, warm data, which is about the relationships between people. And um, a point that, that Adrian and I have discussed and that Adrian makes is that to sort of try to cram everything into a widened definition actually potentially serves to undermine those different categories of information or insight um, and, and sort of box them into to a broader term. And so when we're talking about evidence, we are talking about the research-based scientific method and then what sits beyond that are other forms of information and insight that we believe um, are of equal value and should play an equal role in informing policy thinking and policy conversations. Right. I mean, I think it's worth having that conversation about the, the language, because I wonder if actually what you're saying is not so dramatically different from other points that we hear fairly often made about the role of evidence, except the way you often hear it framed is not there are other sources of knowledge apart from evidence. It's more the definition of evidence should be widened in exactly the way you just mentioned. So to include, for instance, community-based knowledge, uh, narrative evidence, ethical considerations and so on. And then people say, 
of course, we should take all these forms of evidence into account. And you're essentially saying, as I understand it, the same thing, but you want to reserve the word evidence for the narrow category of just the output of the scientific method. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I do think it's important that we are careful with the language because these terms can become meaningless in the, in the end if, if we let them get too baggy. To my mind, and I realise I'm talking to your audience, which are expert in this, so I'm doing this extremely carefully, I suppose, or, or with the appropriate humility about my ability to express this. But to my mind, evidence relates to a more specific idea of proving something to be true or not true. A hypothesis has been offered. We are testing it. What is the evidence that it is true or that it is false? That is what evidence is. If we start talking about evidence in relation to people's stories and communities, there is no hypothesis. If we try to set that up as a scientific experiment with a hypothesis to be tested and whether people's stories prove that to be true or not, I think that is completely missing the point about these other ways of knowing. So I'd rather we, we reserve the term evidence for the more scientific research-based approach. And then there are plenty of other terms available in other disciplines to explore these other concepts. But, and they are, I believe, other ways of knowing, other ways of conceiving of the world around us, of understanding the world around us. And it's, and it's that point, I suppose, which is one of the, the key points we're making. We need to embrace these other ways of knowing and not just get stuck in an enlightenment, rational, scientific way of thinking, because that, that's helpful, but it falls very, very short of what's required. Just to jump in and add to that, I'm reading a, a fascinating book at the moment called Braiding Sweetgrass, which is written by um, an Indigenous American author who has done her PhD in ecology. And what she describes is the process of unlearning that she does through her PhD, where she had always experienced nature in a particular way as an embodied experience. She was one with the ocean and the, the river and, you know, one with the forest. And then she's taught through her scientific course to disassociate from nature, to see nature as a thing, to understand the component parts and to objectify nature as something to understand and to learn about, but not that you're part of. And then she embraces that fully and rejects her sort of Indigenous ways of knowing for many, many years until she comes back to a point where she feels the confidence to say, what I learned through the scientific method was incredibly valuable and has, has changed and enriched my understanding. But actually, the richest way to see and understand this field of ecology is by blending both of my knowledge systems, by bringing together my Indigenous knowledge system, which uses different words, which sees nature as being part of the self, together with the scientific approach, which obviously is quite different. And so I think that, you know, it's this intelligent blending of the two without needing to sort of reduce the differences to a point where we say, well, it's all part of the same category of thing, because they actually are, as Adrian was saying, different ways of knowing, which need to be blended to generate the type of insight that we think is most valuable. Okay, so to be a bit more concrete, you said both of you, I think that policymaking can fall short if it only draws on evidence under the narrow definition. So, so how? Or if you prefer, what do we gain when we broaden the kinds of inputs? So let me, I'll jump in with, a, with an example from Finland. I'm speaking to you from Sweden, so I'm, I'm uh, always interested in Nordic examples. And of course, the Nordics are often pointed to more broadly for 
public administrations are generally considered to be well functioning and well funded, etc. What the Finns have started to think about, and they've started particularly within the field of education, is rather than the traditional model of let's understand what works in terms of teaching practices, pedagogy, curriculum, and kind of roll that all up into a national plan for our school system, let's say, they're actually turning that on its head and saying, actually, the knowledge about how to best teach and best enable, I suppose, the learning outcomes for Finnish students is held within the teachers, within the schools, within the local educational bodies themselves. And our role at the national level in the Department for Education and this particular part of the Department for Education, which is interested in innovation, is to create the conditions within which the knowledge that's sitting out there in the system can be cultivated and shared and built upon so that the whole system can evolve. So rather than thinking of it as something they're trying to control from the top, they're thinking of it more like a gardener might think of their garden. They're cultivating the conditions that allow that school system to flourish and and to evolve. The benefit of that is that whereas in a traditional hierarchical approach, the information losses up and down the hierarchy are profound. You, you have to simplify things greatly. If you just think about what success looks like, what success looks like when you're sitting at the top, how you measure success, really just gets boiled down to, into a few KPIs. How many kids are passing their exams? What, what are the different statistics on a few key points? What's happening in the system gets simplified down to a few headlines. And that's what gets sort of discussed at the top. And then the directions that flow out from the top, do this, do that, are also simplified because they have to flow back out down the system and they get interpreted and enriched as they go back down. So rather than creating this informational bottleneck at at the top, the Finns are saying our role is actually to create an ecosystem that is learning, evolving and embracing and celebrating the knowledge that's out there and not being worried about the fact that we can't synthesize that and distill it and write it all down into guidance, because by doing so, we ossify it and we actually prevent the kinds of innovation and learning that we're trying to seek. So hopefully that's an example of a completely different worldview, I suppose, about what the role of that central government body is and what the role of evidence and good evidence looks like in that conversation about the school system in Finland. Yeah, thank you. It sounds like what you're advocating uh, involves something which might be quite scary, which is the policymaker or the government giving up some power, some control. That takes courage, I guess, especially when we're talking about elected governments which need to be able to point to their achievements and which, to be honest, will be held accountable for them, whether they like it or not. Yeah, um, that's spot on, Toby. This is really hard for government. But I think even though it's hard, it's so much better. <laughs> and and people always ask the question, what what risks are there and what, you know, what could go wrong? And, and the response to that is always, well, what's the counterfactual? You know, what is happening at the moment? And is that really desirable? So I think that there's a, a really powerful concept Um, that's introduced in in a book called Seeing Like a State of Legibility, which sort of touches on the ideas that Adrian was just speaking about, which is this this need to sort of reduce things down to the point that we can understand them and exert control over them. And that's what governments tend to do because it makes things feel safer, it makes things feel easier, um, it makes people feel as though there's a plan that they can follow and if they follow that plan, they will 
reach the desired point. But what James Scott introduces in this book, Seeing Like a State, is the idea that actually legibility can be a force for bad, can really create perverse outcomes. So he gives the example of modern forestry practices, which I think is a beautiful illustration of this. So forests are messy and entangled and wild and very difficult for humans to understand because of the complexity involved. And what modern forestry practices did was it looked at this forest and it thought, well, what we need this forest for is is for timber. And so if we just pull down all the different trees and make and make this neat and clean and, and plant the trees in straight lines, then we'll produce much more timber, we'll have much greater harvests and we'll be more productive, which is ultimately what we want. So that's what they did. They ripped down these complex entangled webs of forests and planted single species trees in straight lines. And it worked for a while um, until it didn't because what they had done was inadvertently damaged the ecosystem that was actually essential to maintaining that forest. And so in the pursuit of productivity, in the pursuit of legibility, in the pursuit of cleanliness and the ability to control, they actually destroyed the thing that they were trying to prop up by making it legible. And I think that's a really beautiful analogy for what government tends to do. Like, yes, it is scary to walk into a forest to not understand how it operates, but by stripping away that complexity, by planting everything in straight lines, you actually end up doing more damage than you would have done had you learnt to navigate your way through the forest, through the different species of trees, etc. And so what we're trying to do at CPI is support governments to embrace and navigate that complexity rather than tearing the trees down and planting lots of straight lines because we know that that ultimately causes a lot of damage. Right. Okay. I'm just trying to figure out the the implications. I could give the example of, of measurement, right? So there's this tendency in government to believe that if we capture enough evidence, if we gather and crunch enough data and use those data to measure against predefined outcomes, then we know, we'll know what works and how to address the challenge at hand, whatever that might be. But the simplifications required to do that actually undermine the complexity of the challenges and, and are counterproductive because they simplify the challenges that government is trying to address. So Toby Lowe, who's a colleague of ours, has a beautiful quote where he says, the measures that governments use are an abstraction. They're a simplification of complex, multifaceted nature of real life into a data point. And they're a superficial substitute for reality. And so what we say we need to do is not not measure. The conclusion that you draw from that is not, okay, we walk away from measurement, but it's a shift in the approach of what we measure, how we measure and why we measure. And that's, I guess, where this blog comes in because when we think about what we measure, we need to be thinking about not just capturing the stuff that's legible, you know, the stuff that we can put into bar charts and graphs and and quantify and, and analyse through models. We need to be incorporating different forms of information, so stories, emotions, world models and relationships. You know, we need to be thinking about what data is missing and whose voices are missing and what untested assumptions are we making which might be obscuring other truths. And this is this is complex, messy stuff. This is the multi-species forest 
that government resists and through resisting it actually imposes a logic of legibility which is really unhelpful because it obscures the messy reality of the truth that we're dealing with. Okay, interesting. I wonder a bit. Okay, so maybe there are two different concepts here which you can help to clarify. So one issue, which I think maybe is what the analogy of the forest is getting at, is the problem of just failing to grasp the true complexity of reality. So you come along, you see something very complicated, and you don't understand how complicated it is, so you oversimplify your model and you kind of stomp all over it and and ruin it. Or, I guess, you see the complexity and your mind is blown and you say to yourself, wow, we'll never grasp that, so let's just tear it down and build it in a more ordered way that fits our own understanding of how we'd like it to be. And so you ruin it. And so that seems to me not a problem with the yearning for legibility, but rather just a failure to achieve legibility. What you've done is you've just failed to model the thing correctly, so you've messed up your interactions with it as a result. And the implication there would be that if you spent a lot more time and wisdom trying to improve your model, you might eventually get something better, something more useful, and avoid the dangers. And, you know, we have like a mature scientific discipline, system science, complexity studies, whatever, which is dedicated to doing exactly that. And you know, I'm sure there are listeners who've experienced that that discipline can yield some good results and it can, in the end, maybe address the issue you're describing perfectly well within the scientific paradigm or, in your terms, within the evidence paradigm. So that's one possibility of what might be going on here. But the second possibility, which I think maybe you were hinting at just at the end there, is that there are some things that might be, in principle, unmodelable, to coin a phrase. So it's not that you've got a very complex system and you need to take your time to understand it. It's rather there are some things in there that you simply will never be able to understand and model, no matter what. And so you need to give up on the attempt to do that and find other ways to bring in that kind of information. Precisely. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. There's actually a really interesting debate amongst systems thinkers because there's um, the systems dynamics, the sort of what they call like hard systems people who build those incredible models um, that, you know, that are um, attempting to do the, the former part of what you've described. So using very sophisticated computer models to model complex systems. And then there's soft systems people who say there is stuff that you just can never model. You know, you can't. And actually in the blog that I wrote on this, I speak about that. I speak about the idea of, uh, of, of trying to model fairness, you know, and, and some people who I've encountered are trying to create um, an AI tool which can incorporate fairness into its decision-making. And the question that I ask is how can you ever encode capture enough nuance and complexity to be able to grapple with what constitutes what's fair for whom at any particular moment in time. So in my view, there are things that you can't model and nor should you try to model because actually in trying to model them, you're imposing this this logic of legibility that doesn't apply and is not helpful to certain concepts in the world. Okay, but bringing in fairness brings in a new kind of question because that I think isn't that a different kind of mistake I mean it's not about complexity now it's a it's like a category error between facts and values so of course you can't make a scientific model that incorporates the notion of fairness because fairness is not a an empirical thing it's a value it's something we try to bring to the world so the fact that fairness is unmodelable isn't really a strike against (laughs) empirical models 
or maybe let's take a step back. What is government generally focused on? What types of thing does government tend to do? Health, education, criminal justice, welfare. These are complex, messy, human systems that in no way, and I don't think anyone would claim, can be equated to a machine or a mechanistic model. They're much more organic, human, messy than that. And if we actually pause and ask, what is the point of a criminal justice system? What is it trying to optimise for? We don't know. Governments have no answer to these questions. So if we can't even answer the simplest question about what's the optimization function, can we describe it, then how on earth are we going to have any hope of building anything approaching a model which describes anything other than the smallest slivers of these complex systems? Now, in the face of that profound and I would say sort of distressing and threatening realisation as a government, you have a choice. You can either pretend that is not the case and carry on as if it is like a machine to be optimised, which is arguably what governments have done for decades, well, for centuries maybe, and singularly failed really to make progress on some of these complex issues. The criminal justice system in many countries is arguably worse than it was historically. It doesn't feel like it's making any better progress on whatever the thing is it's supposed to be doing. And if we look at something like the climate crisis, clearly we have completely, governments and everybody else has completely missed the mark. And the sort of optimization efficiency mindset has led us entirely down the wrong track. We need to stop and think and be open to the possibility that there's a completely different way of thinking about this, which needn't be threatening, actually. It's kind of liberating. Because rather than beating ourselves up about the fact that we don't know the answers and we can't control things as well as we wanted to, and we haven't got the sort of deterministic models which explain how X leads to Y leads to Z leads to an education or health or whatever outcome, we can say we don't need to. We actually do not need to do that because there's another way of thinking about the world which says actually we're all actors in the system and our role as governments is actually to help create the conditions in which better outcomes are more likely to emerge. And that draws on complexity science, systems thinking, and the rest of it. It doesn't turn its back on the sort of deterministic evidence base that it that exists, but it doesn't base the whole worldview on that. And if listeners are interested in a sort of very well-known um, model for how to think about these different domains, then uh, Dave Snowden's Kniffen framework which is a Welsh word, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but you can put in the show notes a link to it, talks about these about four different domains, which are simple, where something is clearly predictable and it's easy to control, complicated, where it's like a watch or something, where it's, it's a bit more involved, but you can ultimately disentangle it and, and work out the different constituent parts. Complex, which is the more organic forest and, what, and the kind of stuff we've been talking about, and chaotic. And the different strategies that you play in those different domains, this, this model argues, are very different. This is not just about government. This is thinking about categories of problem. And our contention, I suppose, is that the, the category error we are making and repeatedly making, and I don't see any evidence that we're not going to continue to make in the future, is by putting things in the complicated or wishing things were either simple or complicated, when in fact they're complex or chaotic. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a really useful set of distinctions. And we will definitely move on. But just before we do, so, sorry to bang the same drum again, but perhaps I'm just not quite getting this yet. So you say we, we don't really know what a criminal justice system is supposed to optimise for. But I mean, surely we do. 
it's supposed to optimize for justice. The difficulty is that justice is not the kind of concept that you can program into an algorithm. Like Theo was saying, you can't make an AI that encodes for fairness or justice or whatever. And that's not because those things are irreducibly complex or chaotic, but just because they're normative. So it seems like the problem maybe is that, okay, we can understand things through science or we can fail to understand it, but that's only half the battle. Because if we don't have our normative ducks in a row, we don't actually know what we want to do about it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think that the the, the problem is that there are normative values actually that inform how we approach evidence, um, but they're invisible and we pretend they're not there. Um, these invisible sort of institutional norms and biases shape what justice is, what success looks like, and we don't actually interrogate that and open up conversations and hold space for the idea that what looks good for this person might be different for what looks good for that person. And that's that's a very difficult thing for government to accommodate. And so, again, what, what there is a tendency to do is to smooth over that difference, to try, try to conceal it and pretend that it doesn't exist because it's incredibly difficult to try to accommodate for different forms of what fairness and goodness and justice looks like. Um, and the only way to accommodate that is to have these really difficult conversations around who's making decisions around what evidence counts, around what, what good outcomes look like. In Australia, there's a really important conversation around this in the context of our Indigenous peoples, our First Nations peoples, because it's always been white people defining the outcomes, defining what a good life looks like for our Indigenous population, which is outrageous when you think about it. Um, but that is a fairly recent conversation that surfaced where they're actually challenging these norms and values um, in, in a way that I think extends beyond just that conversation to, to a much broader one. Mm -hmm. the, Toby, you asked, is the problem that the system is complex or that the objective function is normative? Both, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's perfectly possible, and I would say almost immediately apparent when you start to delve into it, that, that we've got an issue on both sides, right? And they're related, of course, because with a, when a system is complex, like the criminal justice system, which has all sorts of different players interacting in all sorts of different ways, often with unpredictable outcomes, which is set in a wider context. So something like COVID happens and suddenly that completely throws the practices of the criminal justice system up in the air. And then you've got all these ripple effects happening. So you've got clearly that as a complex system, which is very, very difficult slash, I would say, impossible to model fully. And we don't actually know really clearly what it is we're trying to achieve with it. We can describe it in conceptual terms. But as soon as you start to pin that down and say, OK, no, what we're interested in is a percentage of people who reoffend when they leave prison. As soon as you do that, you immediately then lose a whole load of other stuff, which people say, no, 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 it's about punishing people who've done something wrong. So it's both. And that you can and we picked criminal justice as, a, as an example, but you can have the same conversation about what's the point of the education system? Is it to make more engineers and lawyers or is it to give allow people to flourish or is it to make people into just well-rounded human beings who can learn and adapt in the unforeseeable future? What's the point of a health system? Is it to fix broken legs? Well, clearly, yes, that is the case. 
are we supposed to be doing more preventative work or is it just an efficient machine for sort of doing operations? What about mental health? And how does the health system relate to the social care system, which is not about health care in the same way, but it's about supporting individuals and families living their best. Clearly, this complexity is, in, is pervasive. It's endemic, right? It's all around us. And as soon as we even try to divide the world up and say the criminal justice system, we realise that it intersects. Most people in prison in the UK have been through the care system when they were younger. So what do we think about that? Well, well, we're just optimising the criminal justice system now, so I'm not interested in that complexity over there. Well, actually, that's probably really important. But because we of our, of our need to carve the world up, we're solving problems of our own conception, which may or may not relate to the complex realities of the world. And when people bring evidence that reinforces those delineations and those assumptions and those um, existing power structures, our argument is, unless we do that with extreme caution, it is as likely to be unhelpful as helpful. And just to, to give a tangible example of how this plays out in the criminal justice system, for example, I was talking with a friend yesterday who worked in justice policy for a while. They were running a program to support young men who had re-offended. And the quantitative evidence was suggesting that the program wasn't having that much of an impact, so they were continuing to re-offend. But when you spoke to people, families of people who had been through that program, communities, um, people who were sort of being offered that program, the program was working because it was changing people's attitudes, it was changing people's belief in themselves, it was changing the relationships between people, it was changing people's faith in government and in the justice system. The, so the stories which sat behind the data, which weren't being captured in numbers, were suggesting very, in very powerful ways that the program was having a very valuable effect. That was going to be a lag between that translating into sort of things that you could easily quantify around reoffending, but and that's a, a really powerful example I think of the way that our, our tendency to sort of preference quantitative data and scientific research sometimes misses the really important nuance and stories and human stuff that sits behind the numbers. Great. Thank you. And, and so I suppose there again, it seems you've got tension between saying one of two things. You can say either, well, we shouldn't rely on the indicators alone because the reality of what's changed isn't reflected in those indicators or isn't reflected yet, right? Because this kind of qualitative change, uh, like an improvement in people's experiences or their self-belief or their attitudes towards government or whatever, those things will take time to filter down into what we still think is the aim at the end of the day, which is improved reoffending rates or reduced crime or whatever. That's one response. The other response could be, if we're just looking at reducing crime or reducing reoffending, then we're not looking at the full story because these other qualitative features just aren't captured, but they also matter. So is it that we haven't got a good enough model or is it that we're not looking at the right stuff in the first place? I, I think there's actually a third thing as well, <laughs> which is that um, there, there are different processes involved with data collection and sort of the scientific method and other forms of, of knowledge like storytelling. So there was this beautiful quote um, where someone said, data takes away people's ownership of their story and storytelling gives that power back to them. And so I think that there's another layer that sits below this, which is not just about, you know, can we get the data that we need? 
It's about what kinds of processes are required when we quantify things or when we apply a scientific method. How does that affect power? How does the process of valuing different forms of knowledge, um, different forms of information, actually start to shift entrenched power dynamics, which are really important in contexts like the criminal justice system, the care system, where people have for their whole lives felt marginalised, disempowered and, and a lack of control over their own story. Okay. So the audience you have here on this podcast, as you know, is a bunch of people who are interested in or who know the science policy interface. And that includes a, a number of scientists and other officials who work at that interface. Do you have concrete advice for them? What's your advice to a science advisor, someone whose business is to serve up scientific evidence for policymakers, bearing in mind what we've talked about so far? It's an excellent question, Toby, and one which um, we, we have to preface, I think, what we're going to say here is we're normally focused on the policymakers. So if we think about the supply and demand, you're on the, the supply side here, and the policymakers are the, are the demand side. However, I think it's important that as suppliers of evidence, we don't fall into the trap of thinking that the evidence which we bring to the table is the kind of gold standard input into the policymaking process for which all of the other forms of understanding and knowing are in some way subservient. Because I think if we fall into that mindset of like, we've got the truth and until such time has, uh, you know, proven otherwise, sort of we'll assume that what we're saying is the right answer and everything else is kind of various shades of, of wrongness. I think that sets up our dynamic, which is entirely unhelpful for the reasons that we've already been discussing. So my single piece of advice, I suppose, or or hope, and I'm sure there are many, many people who are already doing this, is to demonstrate the humility that comes with recognising that any one of us is only able to bring a portion of the potential way of understanding a situation. And only through the combination of these different ways of knowing and understanding that we are likely to really make progress on some of these issues that I know everybody who works in all of these fields cares deeply about. And all too often, I see the opportunity for that kind of, not just interdisciplinary, but inter-paradigm, inter-worldview way of thinking get shut down because people are unwilling to accept that there's value out with You know, sometimes we can come across as being dismissive and negative about evidence. We're actually not, but we're saying it needs to be in in its place within a wider context. And we need to think a lot harder about how to be more integrative of these different ways of knowing. And And the purveyors of evidence have an important role to play in that conversation. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. I th- and I think it's it's a commitment to curiosity and open-mindedness um, and reflexivity. In a way, you would hope that people working in the field of science would be open to the idea of constantly interrogating their own practice, their own hidden biases. And, and there's no, I think the reality is there's no way around this stuff. We all carry biases that shape how we move in the world, that shape what we give preference to, that shape what we value. And there's no way of getting around that. That's an inherently human condition, part of the human condition. So the only thing that we can do is recognise that 
be honest with ourselves about it and be committed to a process of constantly interrogating those biases, those patterns that we fall into and trying to disrupt them um, through the process of having conversations with people who you may not necessarily always have conversations with um, and by really committing to, to an open-mindedness and curiosity, as I said before. There's another angle to this, which you may have discussed previously, Toby, on your, on your podcast, which is the relationship with politics and with politicians. Because I think there's a trap, another trap to fall into, which is if only those stupid politicians would just listen to the evidence, you know, we'd all be in a much better place. And I'm sure there are circumstances where that's true. But the role of politicians and politics is actually extremely important in relation to what we've just been talking about. Politicians at their best and I'll be the first to admit that, you know, we've got many examples we could probably think of where they're not at their best, but politicians at their best, their job is to help society to weigh up competing interests and, and arrive at decisions about the direction of policies that incorporate a whole range of different views and opinions and are not just what the scientists say. And of course, COVID has proven that to be of particular importance that we're all now aware of. Governments have done some very stupid things during COVID. There have been some really horrendous errors that have been made, but there's also been some extraordinarily inspiring political leadership that isn't just about saying, don't worry, we've, we've got the answer and it's a vaccine over here, but it's been about reassuring people, listening to people, trying to reach out and connect with communities who are suffering disproportionately as a result of the pandemic and for which all of the medical science has got no real answer, right? Because yes, we understand that the mRNA vaccine is effective under these circumstances or whatever, but how we actually think about that in society, how we think about encouraging people to take the vaccine is a much, much more complex issue that we're still, we're still wrestling with. And that's where our politicians have to step in. They can't follow the science. There's no single science to be followed there's a debate within the scientific community about many, many of these things. So it falls to our politicians to, to navigate that terrain. So what I'm arguing for here is that we step away from a characterization of the truth is held by the scientists. And if only the politicians listened to the truth, we'd all be better off. And instead acknowledge that the politicians have actually a really tough job. And they are, in a sense, brokering these different ways of knowing and understanding of which the science is a part. And the sooner we can recognise that and contribute to that broader discussion in a more purposeful way, I think the better we'd all be. Yeah, so reflection, perhaps from where I'm sitting, I think there is a growing recognition in the science advice community, which I'm no more than an amateur observer of, really. But it seems there is some recognition of what you're saying, but to a less radical degree, radical degree. What do I mean? Okay, I think there are various levels of humility. There's the kind of basic scientific humility which exists within one's own discipline, which I think is so deeply ingrained in the scientific mindset that it almost goes without saying. This is like the understanding that whatever research you're doing, and no matter how robust your theories seem, you understand that the evidence might show you something different tomorrow. You might have been misled, you might have made an error, your worldview might have blinded you to other considerations, you might be a victim of chance, what have you. You might be wrong, basically. That's a pretty universal form of humility, I think, and it's so much a fundamental tenet of the scientific method that it's, I don't know, it seems solid to me. Then there's another layer, which is like disciplinary humility, the recognition that there are other 
sources of evidence from outside your own discipline that can be equally valuable or more valuable and provide different kinds of insights. Hence, the, the increasing focus, especially in science advice, on transdisciplinary work and mixing physical scientists, social scientists, behavioral scientists, ethicists, system scientists, and so on. Okay, My impression is that that battle also is won, at least in principle, whether we've applied it well in practice yet is a different matter, but at least scholarship is taking that forward. Then there's the third level, which is the one you mentioned, Adrian, as it were, like paradigm humility. And that's a whole new thing where you say, look, we need to look outside science. There are completely other forms of knowing other ways to come to conclusions. And that, I think, is the really interesting part of the challenge that you're laying down, because that, as I see it, is not yet properly recognized or incorporated to the science advice world. I'm not sure as a community we really get it yet. I think that's a, that's a really helpful and an interesting way of framing it, Toby. A concept that we've become increasingly interested in at, at CPI is not one we've invented, but it's uh, perhaps less familiar uh, in, in some of these discussions is the, is the idea of sense-making. And what sense-making means literally is how we make sense of the world. How do we arrive at a deeper richer, more nuanced understanding of, of reality and society and the challenges that we face together. And by using a concept like sense-making rather than research, we're opening exactly to that level, that final level that you're talking about, because sense-making is about spanning ways of knowing. That's the point of sense-making. Good sense-making does that. Uh, and in that sense, I can't really sense make on my own. Right? It's a collective activity. It requires that richness and that diversity. The reason we're interested at CPI in sense making is if you think about the capacities within, I would argue, society as a whole, but from our purposes within government and public institutions, the, the different skills and capabilities that we see there. We've invested lots over the years in strengthening different aspects of the policymaking process, different ways of, say, bringing evidence to the policymaking process. But I think what we haven't really articulated even and, and would benefit from much, much more attention than it currently gets is what is the sense-making capacity, the sense-making capability of our policymaking systems? How can they purposefully and unapologetically open the doors, demonstrate that humility that we've been talking about, and actually actively seek to be more integrative and more open to these different different ways of knowing. That's what sense-making looks like. So one of the questions we're asking is, what would good sense-making look like in government? Where are people already doing good sense-making? And what role can we play as CPI in encouraging better sense-making in our systems? And I think, I think that's absolutely true for government, but it's true for society. You might argue, for example, that social media, the polarization we're seeing in the political debate, the politicization of debates that weren't politicized before is actually leading to a breakdown of sense-making society. We can we no longer actually have the same capacity to arrive at majority-held views about the world we face around us. And that's why, that's exactly why we have people on the one hand who think that anybody who doesn't have the vaccine is an idiot for COVID. And then people on the other who think that all the people who've taken the vaccine are sheeples who've just going along with, with whatever they're told to do, potentially as part of some global conspiracy. And until we find ways of bridging these conversations rather than throwing rocks at each other, we are not going to really make progress on the toughest issues that we face. Yeah, I agree. I, I think just to add, like, I think one of the really difficult things about sense making 
is going back to the point that I was making before, the biases that we all hold and the way that we privilege certain forms of knowledge above others. So I know I do it because of the way that I've been conditioned, because of the way I've been educated, because of the way I've been brought up. I believe certain forms of knowledge to be more rigorous and more valid than others. And it's a really, really hard process to untangle those patterns of thought and those biases that shape us to believe that some, some forms of knowledge are more valid than others. But this is precisely the process that needs to happen where people sit in a room and listen to people talking about their lived experience, you know, of the care system or whatever it might be, and see that knowledge as being just as valid, just as important, um, and just as much a part of the piece of the puzzle of making sense of the story as the more traditional sort of scientific evidence. So I think there's an art in creating spaces and, and safety and curiosity and open-mindedness to be able to facilitate these kinds of conversations um, and help people disrupt the mental models which force them to privilege certain forms of knowledge over others. And that's something that we're really interested in, in doing and in supporting. Do you have an example of how this works in practice? We've been doing a lot of thinking about sense-making and so we've been exploring who's doing this and and who's experimenting with sense-making. And I think the organisation that we see, that we've seen doing it best uh, is the UNDP. Uh, and they're doing it in, across a range of different uh, countries uh, in a range of different ways. Uh, and I thought the the work, there's a, there's a great article which describes the sense-making work that they've been doing in Bhutan to understand um, youth unemployment and sort of pervasive youth unemployment. Uh, and it's a wonderful example of bringing together people's stories, people's experiences together with quantitative insights and blending those different forms of, of knowledge to paint a really rich and deep picture of the challenge and the opportunities at hand. And I think that one of the the features of sense making that that I've observed as well is that it it requires quite a different type of um, sort of solution, if you like. So, because through sense making you reveal multiple truths, and and the purpose is not to distill down to a singular version of the truth or even a consensus position. It's rather to sort of reveal these multiple perspectives and then move forward with those multiple perspectives held in your mind and influencing how you think. What comes out of these sense-making processes are um, portfolio approaches to, uh, to, to policy-making. So, for example, um, whereas traditionally you might have had a group of people doing a whole lot of analysis around youth unemployment and then designing a policy or a program of work which is designed to address youth unemployment, what the sense-making process supports instead is a plethora of small experiments which you move ahead with and then you see what happens. Uh, it's, it goes back to the Kinevan framework that Adrian 
uh, mentioned before where it's um, probe, sense and respond. So what you do is you, you have the conversation, you reveal these multiple perspectives, you design a number of small experiments, then you watch what happens with those experiments. Some may need to wither and die. You help those wither and die. Some may really flourish. And so then you start putting more energy into those. And then the environment changes again and you, you keep experimenting. So what sense-making supports is actually quite a different approach to designing and delivering programs and, and responses to the insights that emerge because it's small, it's experimental, and it's really supported by this continuous learning, iteration and adaptation kind of approach. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. It's time to bring this to a close, unfortunately. You know, I introduced you both as being quite deeply critical about the role of evidence in policy. And I get the impression you are, but I've also got the impressions we've talked that there's quite a lot of optimism too, um, not just about clarifying and affirming the role of evidence like in its place, but also about broadening the kinds of knowledge that can inform policy. So I am very grateful indeed to both of you for sharing your insights, Thea Snow and Adrian Brown. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Toby. Thanks, Toby. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko, so I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.